want you to turn to John chapter 17. That'll be our beginning text. I'm going to look at three different passages this morning to begin with. My title is the beginning of a little series I want to do on union with Christ. Union with Christ. Now, to define union so we know what we're talking about, union is an act or an instance of joining two or more things together. It's two things that are joined together by some method or some means or by something. And when two things are joined together, there is a union there. The word obviously means unity. Unity means oneness. It means togetherness. In a spiritual sense, it's what makes things work the way they're supposed to. It's harmony. It's unity. It's accord. You know, a marriage is a good example of a coming together of two parties. They don't become two different people. They are two different people. They come together to be one person. Not a numerical one, but a unified person one, to become one. And in order for that to happen, there must be more to this union than just physical attraction. Because anybody that's ever been married long realizes that after the marriage begins, there are difficulties that have to be encountered. There must be a compromise from both sides to work out things, because if they don't, it brings disunity. It brings disharmony. If one of the parties is stubborn or obstinate, which means stubborn, and they are unwilling to compromise or to bend for many reasons, then you no longer have unity and harmony. You have disunity and disharmony. The same thing can happen in the spiritual world. We can come to the Lord and we can have an idea of what God is like and imagine ourselves being in union with Christ because, well, I go to church I've been baptized, or I give money, or I help out with projects. I go on mission trips, or on retreats, or I do things around the church. Therefore, I'm in harmony with Christ. But you know this, that you can do all of that and not be in a unified harmony with the Lord. You've just learned to do things that good people think goodness does. And when you do those things, you imagine yourself being in harmony. But the Bible teaches us, for example, that spiritual unity is a result of conformity to the doctrine of Christ. And then that's over most people's head because the word doctrine is like throwing a clunker into the mix. We don't like doctrine. And most church folks don't like doctrine. They don't like to be taught and instructed, but that's what doctrine it means. Doctrine means teaching. And it's such a vital aspect of the Christian church and amongst Christians that without the teaching, there is no unity. There is no harmony. Of course, when God brings us to him, he forgives us of our sins and all of that, and he calls us his own. But the rest of your life, we're told you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That saving beginning, that new birth must end with 1 Peter 1, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, and it's something you've got to deal with. Or as 
Paul wrote, and we've heard so often, your life has to be transformed. It's been made new. Now there must be a transformation so that all that is new comes forth by the renewing of your mind. New things have to occupy your thinking. New ways have to be choices now. Everything has to change. There can be no holding back when it comes to being in union with the Lord. You can't pick and choose what you want to do that he instructs us about. Because unless we follow the teaching of the teacher, how can there be unity? A further example, would you turn in the back of your Bibles to the little epistle of 2 John? 2 John. We're defining unity right now. Remember Luke wrote this in the book of Acts 4, in him we live and move and have our being. That's Acts 17 in verse 28. For in Jesus Christ we exist. Not in what we think about Christ, but solely and entirely on his terms as it comes forth from him. If we adhere to that, we are right with the Lord and in union with the Lord. In other words, we have a relationship with the Lord because he defines what he wants and we are willing to do it. The defining work of God we call teaching or Doctrine, the Greek word, means doctrine. Now, in 2 John 9, whoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Does your Bible say something like that? If any of us hath not God, that is, if we are not in a relationship with God on his terms, then we're not in union with Christ, are we? I didn't say we were bad, ugly, mean, awful people. I just said there's no union there. Because the basis for unity that Jesus presents us with is his word or his teaching, doctrine. You can find that in John chapter 7. If you're taking notes, verse 16 and 17 he discusses this doctrine. He says, my doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me has given me what to say. His doctrine, his teaching, in other words, his commandments, what Jesus taught us to do. How about this one in Matthew 28, verse 20? He said, go into all the world in verse 19 and verse 20. He said, teaching them to observe. That's what we're called to do, teach. Well, the word teaching is the same word as doctrine. So that Bible doctrine is what God has given us to learn. And what God has given us to learn, God has required us to live, to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And when we do this, it's John 14. We are demonstrating to the Lord that we love him more than the things we had to give up to do this. The way we had to set aside in order to live this new way, we love him more than all the pleasure we got out of the old ways that we had to give up if those ways were in the way. We gave up this, we gave up that, we quit doing this, quit going there, quit talking this one, quit hanging around that one. Because we want this relationship with God more than anything. Not everybody has this kind of a constitution. Not all of us have this same desire. And again, I'm not talking about bad people. I'm not talking about ugly and awful people. I'm just saying that in Christian circles, 
Not everybody who assembles before the Lord has this desire to be taught of the Lord, to surrender all areas of their life to his lordship, who have a desire to say, teach me thy ways, O Lord, so that I can walk in thy truth. How else can I relate to God? How else can I be on your team on the same page? I am lost in my sins. I'm destitute. I'm gone astray. You have drugged me out of this miry clay. You have set my feet up on a rock that is stable and steadfast. And I want you to infuse into my mind and my thinking deep gratitude for being delivered from the sentence of death and being brought into your marvelous light because you wanted me and not because I deserved it. You chose me. I didn't choose you. And I want you to cause me to be thankful and grateful every day of my life, the rest of my life, as long as I live. I want you to make me thankful for that and to demonstrate my thankfulness by wanting to know what you want me to do. Teach me thy ways so that I can walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name so that I do have a desire when I come here the few times we meet that I have a desire to take advantage of the moment, to make the most of it, to listen carefully, to give the more earnest heed to the things that are heard. Teach me thy ways. Now, that's so important. It's a progress. It takes a while, and some go faster than others, to be sure. But back again in verse 9, he said, Whoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. But he says, he that abideth in the teaching of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. Now, that may not mean that you possess them as much as it means that you are possessed of them, that God has accepted us. Again, as somebody before me has said, we don't accept him. He really accepts us. And the terms of our relationship is our willingness to give heed to what he's saying, to want to hear it, the doctrine or the teaching, not only of Christ, because he said, if you love me, keep my commandments or keep my word. Go into all the world and teach the nations whatever I have said. Would that be his doctrine? So to be a Christian is to live by what Christ taught. I mean, it's simple. And let me tell you something, when you get a congregation of people having that same heart, we don't have all these quiet, void, awkward moments. We don't have some worshiping and some not. We don't have some glad and some sad. We don't have that. Because what we've been taught supersedes all the negatives and it brings forth all the good. But see, there are different levels. Some are trying, some maybe aren't. Some have a relationship with God. Some don't. Jesus said, not everybody that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus said. And there's nothing this morning that keeps us from obeying God except things in our life, ways in our life, attitudes in our life. We just don't want to give up. We just really don't want to make the big change that much. And we all say about it, oh, they love the Lord. 
They just don't do what he says. Well, that's a misnomer, isn't it? That's a misnomer. Now, verse 10, again, to point out how serious this whole thing is, verse 10 tells us the basis of why we separate from the world and for people who are not Christian. He said, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, the way of Christ, the teaching of Christ, receive him not into your house, nor bid him Godspeed. Well, that sounds like 2 Corinthians 6. What fellowship was light have with darkness? Or with good with bad? Or the way of God with the way of the world? I don't know very many people who are that courageous and are willing to do that. But it's what it says. And it's the basis for relationship. If anybody comes to us, and we've had them come in and out of here for years, if anybody comes to you and has not this doctrine, maybe they're knocking on your door with something about a tower somewhere, and they want to give you some information. Or they want a donation for the flyer children of Mr. Moon's group, if he's still around. They have not the doctrine of Christ. They don't believe in the virgin birth. None of the cults do. They don't even believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. They don't believe in the, a lot of things. And we're told that what you've got is so precious that you cannot allow yourself to set that precious thing aside so that you can fellowship with the vile. Once you make this distinction between the right and wrong, and God shows you that, you walk in the right now and you reject anything that doesn't agree with that. That's why people talk about you. That's why we get persecuted. And we so dread persecution that we would rather set aside the things we're supposed to believe so that people will like us than to do what he said and be persecuted for it. But this is how we're sifted and separated. This is how it works. God allows wickedness and evil and falsehood to come into our life. There's two things in this life that separates and that causes persecution, truth and error, both of them. We have to have a heart if we don't have, we need to pray, God, give me a heart for truth. Let me desire your ways and walk in your ways. I may not be a smart person, may not be very advanced mentally, but he didn't say I had to be either. God didn't call me because I was a genius. <laughs> he called me because he wanted to. And the Holy Spirit is the intelligent one, and he can make all things new and make us to be wise. It's all about, this morning, about harmony and unity. Now, John 17, have you found it yet? In John 17 and verse 20. Now, remember what I just said, and then listen to these words. This is Jesus' prayer. We call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus the prayer he prayed right before he went into the garden where he was then captured and then crucified. So this was the last prayer in the Bible that Jesus prayed. These were the things he prayed. He said in verse 20, to you sitting here this morning and to me standing here, he said, neither pray I for these alone, that is the Jews, his disciples, his followers, but for them also which shall believe on me through their name. That would be you and I. Would it not? So he not only prayed for his own, he is also at this point praying for me and for you. Verse 21, here's his prayer. That they all may be 
one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that's unity, union, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Isn't that something? That the world may believe that God really did send Jesus Christ. Union. Harmony. Us with God, God with us. On the same page, no controversies. On our side, it's total obedience. Yielding to God. Verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. And this is what that glory does. That they may be one. Let me ask you all a question this morning. Now, we might be over our heads right now because we really aren't sure how you define what is meant here by glory. The glory that the Father gave the Son, the Son gave unto his disciples so that the disciples can be one like Jesus and the Father are one. Can we be one, as the Bible says we should be one, without this glory? then I would think one of our pursuits would be, what did Jesus mean by this glory? Because I need that in my life to do my part. If nobody else has it, I want it, because if nobody else relates to God, I want to. I'm not in competition, not trying to beat anybody, but if it takes his glory to become one with him or together or in harmony or unity or union with Christ... If it takes this thing called glory, then, Lord, I want it too. Give it to me. Or show me what it is that I may pursue it or find it. Because it appears that the more I read, maybe I'm just getting older but maybe wiser. Maybe white hair does mean something. Other than being cranky and all that. But maybe after all these years, it's beginning to focus now. You know, maybe it is in the last days the Spirit will begin to show us things in a deeper dimension, a more meaningful way than we've seen it before. Maybe it does make the teaching a little more sober. Maybe it does bring us into a place called the Valley of Decision where we're going to have to do something. We can't continue to hear we should do this and not do it. We're going to have to do something. Because God's spirit will not always strive with man. We saw that in the days of Noah. He may strive for a while, but there come a day he'll give you up. And I don't want that to happen. I want us to go to heaven. I want everything to be right. Now, let's set the glory aside for later and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at the church now and this business of unity and harmony and what makes a local body of believers, what they should be and what keeps them from being what they should be. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. With all lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he speaks of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, and one, 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 unity, harmony. There's no division here. 
the Father and the Godhead, they don't see things differently. It's all one. Now, we need an adjustment on our demeanor, our character, our behavior. I need to be adjusted. You stop and think of all the many people that are here. Was there 2,000 here this morning, this cathedral of yesterday? It only takes a few. We came here from other places, different backgrounds, different everythings. Shelbyville was an alien town to just about everybody here. Shelbyville, where's that at? Well, why wouldn't he go to Louisville with it? I don't know. A lot of big cities in America have been avoided for a deep move of God. It's mostly been the countrysides, cornfields and basements, that a lot of really lasting things have happened. A lot of the other stuff happens, comes and goes. But things that have had a lifelong impact happen in indiscreet places with people like you and me. Now, he said in verse 2, with all meekness, gentleness, lowliness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. Is this what we should have? And is this not what the Spirit of God is doing? Then why do we not see much evidence of it? Well, there is some evidence, but there's not a lot. But there's not a lot of harmony in a lot of things. See, maybe it's you get older, you get set. You get set, you're harder to teach. Because the more convinced you think you know more than what you've heard, the less likely you are to be conformed to what you heard. The devil's a master deceiver, subtle in his doings. Now, when there is no harmony of when there's no meekness and lowliness of mind and long-suffering and endeavoring and loving one another, when you don't have that active, let me show you what happens. Put your finger right there or pencil or something. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And when you don't have that, here's what you get. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's complimented them for the first nine verses there. He said, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, is that possible? Is it? I used to hear the word perfect. Early on, I hear the word perfect, and I think, that's not possible. I had a different view. I didn't know the Bible word perfect and what it meant like I do now, but the English word perfect, there's no way. Maybe I look at myself and I say, there's no way. Much as I'd like to be perfect, there's no way. Well, in the same kind of a mindset, you read a verse like this here, that we all, that we all, that we all think the same way, have the same mind, there's no way. I've pastored and been around churches and church people, and I've been in different continents and different countries and spoken to so many different kinds of people. 
And I look at this, after all these years I come back, I look at this and I say, there's no way. People are so stubborn and so set and so sure they're right and unbendable and unpliable that there's no way. Oh, there's always some that are, but when you look at the whole, you don't find this. And yet he said, I beseech you in the name of our Lord. I beseech you here that you all speak the same things and that there be no divisions among you. Now, there was in this church. Let me tell you something. Here was the church. First Corinthians was the church that, that he says that they come behind in no gift. Verse 7, they come behind in no gift. The church that teaches us on the gifts of the Spirit. And the church that tells us about having prophets in the church and, and having the apostle Paul as one who founded this church and spent much time with this church. And yet after all this early church outpouring, deep working spirit, miracles and signs and wonders were common. But in this church with all their gifts, it was somewhat dead. It was a dead church. How can that be? Well, look at verse 11. It has been declared unto me by my brethren concerning you that there be contentions among you. How many of you know that where there are contentions, there is not unity? In a church, in a marriage, listen to me, in your own life. You know what doubt is? Doubt is contention within you. The uncertainty of what's right and what's wrong. I can't make up my mind. God said, but the world, but I feel. You know, he said, but I feel. It's this inward division. When it comes in a church, it's people divided. They argue, they fuss. There's schism. Division. There's this unwillingness to get along. It's murmuring and gossiping and backbiting and saying things about people. If somebody made a wrong five years ago, 20 years later, you still think of them as what they did 20 years ago. And it's just kind of this thing that keeps us from being a worshiping, praising bunch of people, I suppose. Things don't go well. Prayers aren't getting answered. People are getting concerned, losing interest. Children don't see anything in it. They, yeah, 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 yeah. The parents are beginning to think like that. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying this is what happens. There are contentions among you. Well, the contentions he's talking about are they're following different people. One says in verse 12, I'm of Apollos and one of Paul and one of Christ. And he said, verse 13, is Christ divided? He said, we, we ministers, we're nothing special in the sense of our character, our makeup. We are vessels just like you called to do something that not anybody can do that we can't do unless we're anointed. And if God doesn't anoint us by his spirit to do what we're called to do, we can't just go out and do it. The gifts that we have don't operate because we just want to operate one. These are manifestations of the Spirit, not the man. We have to wait on the Lord. And some seem in this church to have more than others. And, oh, look at this one. Oh, I'm following this and I'm following that one. And when the whole church came together in the agape feast, 
They didn't really care about each other. Some, Paul said, would sit over here and eat and get drunk. This group didn't have enough, and this group didn't care, and this group over here. There was nothing amongst them that would glorify, uh uh-oh, there's that word, nothing there that glorified Christ. Nothing there that God could say, what a suitable atmosphere to reveal myself in. Like day of Pentecost, where they were all uh, arguing about who's, who's the boss. Is that it? Oh, one accord. That's it. Thank you. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, there was no division among them. There were no contentions among them. They were all in one place. In one accord, all they could remember was that Jesus said, Tarry ye in the city until I send the promise of my Father upon you, which saith ye, you heard from me that, and so forth. And so they begin to tarry in the city, and they begin to have this together. The whole group, they were pouring out their heart to God. And God said, Now that is an atmosphere for divine manifestation. And that's just when God began to manifest himself. Some of those journeys that Paul took when these new people came and they were all so holding on to his words and nobody was fighting and God poured out his spirit and saved thousands or healed the whole bunch. There's something about what God manifests himself in. And you get a bunch of Christians coming together and this one goes this way and that one has that and this one, this one, this one. It's very obvious we're not following Jesus. We pick and choose what we want to follow, but we're not following him. Years ago, the little policeman in the kingdom, little charismatic policeman, would go to other churches and see who's walking by faith, who's wearing a head covering, who's raising their hands or who believes in the rapture. And they would just fuss and blow. They never heard the other part about loving people. They never read Romans 14. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. They never read that because that's not what they want to do. They didn't have a good gentle heart about them. They weren't meek and lowly in heart, having compassion and concern for others that are Christians. Oh, no, they had an agenda. We're going to do it this way or you folks are out. The very thing that is contentious in a church was the very thing that kept God from manifesting himself. And eventually, that thing will fall apart because God will abandon it. There's something here. There's something here. Look in chapter 3 and in verse 1. I couldn't speak to you folks here. I couldn't speak to you as two spiritual people. What if he said that to us in this building this morning? What if he said that? Would that embarrass you? I'd have to hang my head in shame because I'm the one that oversees this. What if the Lord came here and said, I cannot speak to you people here like spiritual people that are really intent on gaining ground and going deeper with God? Because here's why. I have fed you with milk, verse 2, and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able Why? For your carnal. Well, that's when you fold your arms and close your Bible and say, who in the world does he think he is? But he is whatever he said he was. He's an apostle. And he said, for you are yet carnal, for where is there is among you envyings and strife and divisions? Are you not carnal and walk as 
mere men. What are divisions? What does God think about divisions, about dividing? The Greek word we get our word schism from. You know, two people disagree in marriage, in a church. Two people have their view of how we ought to do this and how things ought to work, and they don't bend, they don't yield, they just get after it, and there's a division there. If it doesn't get solved, it destroys unity, and usually it destroys love till two people don't even care, really care about each other anymore. What the devil does. But divisions... Let me tell you how God feels about division. The one thing that the Bible speaks of that God hates, and some people don't think he does, but he does. There's some things that God hates in Proverbs 6. You don't have to turn to it, but in Proverbs 6, he lists several things that God hates. And one of the things that God hates is he that soweth discord among brethren. Now, I've been here long enough and had enough trials and tribulations that came from different parts of the country. I had enough experience that I can tell you that there have been multitudes of people who caused division. I remember a man came to me once and said, I need to talk to you. He hadn't been here long, but he'd been here long enough. He had his badge on, packing his little pistol and his little badge. He wanted me to arrest somebody in the church because they had a book in their house by Billy Graham. Now, these kind of people come to your house and they look around. And, what are they looking for? Something so they can accuse you of, like the devil. It got to me to where, in, to a fault. I don't want strangers in my house. I know that's not right, and I'll work on it. I don't want people, I don't want even want new Christians coming in my house and looking around and seeing what all they can see. This is where I live. This is where I live. I saw, don't tell anybody, they always say that. I saw a pork chop in his refrigerator. <laughs> How'd you get in his refrigerator? They weren't in the room. Now, nobody's ever done that. Do you think people who come to a meeting with that attitude advance the body? And what do they do when God rings their bell or identifies him or you point them out? They justify it. They don't change. They're not here for that. I remember a group came here once from a little home meeting. And they saw things their way. And they came here the first meeting. First meeting right out of the box. Your women are vain. And I guess the guy's wife was sitting beside him. I guess she was too. She was in the room. And I think, my goodness gracious. See, I had a lot of trials and tribulations. They moved here from everywhere. So you have to call a guy up after the meeting is over and say, are you God? And this nervous. I said, are you God? No. Well, you must be because you know everything about everybody. And you know all the women are vain. You don't even know anybody here. How do you know the women are vain? You been around any of them? And I said, because, you know, being a pastor, you sometimes do it. Today, this has been watered down so much that people don't know what they believe anymore. But I said then they would be criticized today. But back then, it didn't matter. I said, if you don't like what we're doing here, you saddle up whatever you wrote in here on and ride off with it. 
That's what I told you. Stand right in front of us. If you don't like it, there's a door. Go back where you came from. I don't want people here like that. I don't want to spend my life chasing gossip. He said that she said, well, I heard this. And she said, sometimes you hear things, you have to deal with it. But I think, boy, 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 just button it. Lock it. Quit separating chief friends. Crucify. Take gossip and put it on your cross and said, you nasty thing. Crucify. Don't be a party to division. Don't put yourself in a place where God has to judge you with this dismal Christian life like so many are living or living way below the level God has because they're not lining up with the Lord. Let me tell you something. When God said, it shall be well with you, then he meant it shall be well with you. There's a way you live, and that comes to pass. And if it's not coming to pass, you need to get on his word. You need to get it right. You can say amen if you want to. It's true anyway. Division. It's drawing apart. It's having adverse views and opinions about each other. I've taught on this for years. This won't stop it. This won't cause it to cease because there's people that just won't yield to this. They just won't line it up. God hates not only those that sow discord, God hates divorce. When two people are joined together, how do they act at a wedding? How do they act? Oh, Oh, yeah, they're just locked. You couldn't blow them apart with dynamite because there's not enough room between them. Get dynamite in there. Oh, boy. And isn't it amazing? Some of them, not a year later, he's downstairs, she's upstairs, or they don't communicate much anymore. Why? Because he said and she said. He won't, and I told her, and I'm the head of the house, and she thinks she is. I told her I was going hunting, and she said, no, you're not. And I said, well, we will find out, won't we, when October comes, won't we? Well, I won't be here. Well, it was good knowing you. I'm going to go buy a new pair of shoes. You've already got 12 pair. We'll get another one, make 13. That's your number, 13. I'm going to go get one more pair. Well, how are you spending too much? It's none of your business. I'm the head of the house. God holds me responsible. <laughs> God holds me responsible to be the head of my house. Aren't all men to be the head of their house? Are they not? How many times do women resent that? Many women think they're smarter, wiser, no more, and they need to tell him that. You know, if you want your house to be in order, you got to be in charge. She has to submit to you. If she doesn't submit to you and you're not in charge, your house is out of order. When we come together, you're bringing disunity in this room. It's in here with us. A lot of women don't want to submit. I praise God for, in my own life, I haven't had this problem. My wife, I know, 
Now, I don't mean this wrong, but I know she has no clue how much money's in the checkbook, how much money came in last year, or if we even have any. I know she doesn't. I know she doesn't. Is she going to buy something? She said, is there enough money to buy something? I said, yeah, okay. She doesn't say, well, what are you going to do with the money? She never asked me. Even her daddy's inheritance, I took that <laughs> and drove it around. <laughs> She never said, that's my daddy's money. No, that's our money. I didn't say that like that. I'm just saying that I've never had to put up with a lot of yaps. So there hasn't been that kind of division in my home. As far as I know, my children, how many we have, seven? <laughs> my children never have seen us argue in 40, how many years? 40 some odd years. 46? Tell me, help me. 47? Forty-six years, I've been married a long time, half a century. They've never seen us have that controversy. They've never seen my wife yapping at me. I would like to think my daughters will be at least that way to their husbands. I would like to think that, and I'm sure it's going to be if it's not. Something about division that God hates, whatever draws it apart, that flirtatious man wanting to have an affair, that flirtatious wife who has an affair with a man and it causes division at home, God hates that. There's great judgment on that. And when it comes to the fact that there's unsolvable, they say, problems between them and they divorce, God hates that because the marriage is a type of the church. He hates division, whether it's in a church or in a marriage. And the reason we have controversies and contentions and difficulties and disunity is because we are stubborn and unyielding to the word of God. If we had a heart for the word, we would yield to it, and there would be no problems amongst us. Zero. How different is the Jesus Christ in you than the Jesus Christ in me? What's the difference? Well, there is no difference. Didn't it say one God, one Christ? Is he one? If I'm letting him live in me, and Caleb here is letting him live in him, though we're two different people, we are in one accord. If there's something he wants to do one way and I want to do it another way, I'll yield to him. He'll yield to me, and then it won't get done. We'll just work it out. Say, well, okay, do it that way. My desire is for your good. In fact, the Bible teaches us in Philippians 2, we are to esteem others' needs as more important than our own. To seek the well-being of others. How can you argue and fuss and be contentious with somebody that you want to help even as much as you want to help yourself? How could you be contentious? Well, the fact of the matter is, we read that verse, we're just not willing to do it. It's not going to work. And consequently, when somebody says, well, I ain't the only one, you can't fix this. I said, you can't fix this. This is a tear growing up in the midst of the wheat. It will not yield to the mastery and the lordship of Jesus. It won't do it. It'll sing the songs. It has an intellectual salvation. It's learned the songs and, and the ways and the time and the way we do things. They've learned all of that, and they can participate as well as anybody, but they don't have a heart for the Word. Their life doesn't change. They have religion. They don't have Christ. 
And what good is it to say you have Christ if you're not in union with him? Because then he has to judge you if you're not. Then they knock on the door. Lord, Lord, open to us. We heard, we listened, we were in the meetings. Didn't he say that? And Jesus said, I what? I never knew you. I think that's the most awful, awful thing that a church member could dwell on if he's not right. That after all this effort and time and money and so forth, he says, I never knew you. We never had a relationship. There was no union between us. There was no togetherness. It wasn't there. Look at, again, back in 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 10. He said, I want you all to speak the same thing. I want you all to be convinced of the same things. I don't mean that one of you likes blue and one of you likes red. Or one of you likes lilies and one of you likes roses. Or one of you doesn't like flowers. It does not have to be an issue. It is not necessary for me to have my way. If you're wrong spiritually and I am right, Galatians 6.1, if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore him. You are right. But do it in a spirit of meekness, considering your own self also. You're not impervious to problems. So when you deal with other people, you need to realize that how many of us have said things that we shouldn't have said and it came back to haunt us? How many people have talked about other people's kids and then when their kids grew up, it fell apart? How many times that happened? You need to consider your own self and how you're dealing with a brother who is taken in a fault. That's what you do. You want him to be restored. He said in verse 2 that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Look in Romans 12. I want you to see about the same mind, because again, this seems like this is just so far away. Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Or I might add, as I've already said, put aside all the petty differences that you have with somebody. You wish they would just wear a different apparel or you wish they'd park their car better. I mean, we got a little parking lot the way it is and you take up two of them in there sideways like you're at the Walmart or something with a new car. Would you be more considerate? Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Put the phone down. Don't call somebody. To, leave it alone. Do your part in letting God deal with them. You'll get your chance. If he wants you to deal with that, you'll get your chance. You'll come together, and the conversation will point right to that, and then you'll get a minister to that person, something that will help them instead of you trying to tell them what to do. Verse 16 again, he said, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Come down. Come down. Be not wise in your own conceits. Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15 and verse 5 and 6. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you. Do you see the word grant? He has to. 
He must. If your heart is right, he will. But here's what he says. May the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Jesus Christ, that you may with one mind, there it is for the third time, that you may with one mind and one mouth, and there's that word, glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oneness. Like-minded in harmony with each other. What we hear is what we're endeavoring to do. Plus, we read and we search the scriptures and we want to get more out of it, so we dive in to see what it says. That you be perfectly joined together. Is that possible? Perfectly joined together is one word. Catartizo. You've heard the word before. I just used it a moment ago in Galatians 6.1. If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore. The word restore is the word catartizo. And it has to do with putting things in right order. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, he talks about putting these things together as they were so that they function as they should. Putting things in right order. Matthew 4, chapter 1, after fishing all night, dragging nets across the rock and breaking holes in the net that fish could go through, and the next day when the fishing is over, they have to mend their nets. They have to put the thing back together. If they don't do that, their nets will be no good. The word mending is a word ketertizo. Now, back in 1 Corinthians 1 again, he says, you be perfectly joined together our word catartizo, the fundamental meaning then is to put something in its appropriate condition to establish and to equip and to arrange, to fix, mend, or prepare, restore. It's what we do. That's what we do. To read it again, Y'all speak the same thing, be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together that you yield to the Spirit's work in you so that you can be properly joined together with the person beside you in the same mind and the same opinions, judgments, views. Now, to go back to Ephesians 4. Again, verse 1, our demeanor has to change. Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring, endeavoring to keep the bond of peace. Endeavoring means to make every effort to do one's best. That's what's required of you, to do your part, to do your best, to bring harmony into the body and not division, because God hates and will judge division. Your life, your family, he will judge division. He does. And he goes on, and he again in verse 4, he says, There is one body and one this and one that and one this and one that. Now, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Can I say this, and would you agree with this? That the work of the Holy Spirit in the church is to bring us into a oneness. Other things, the Spirit does more than that, but one of his unique things with the body is to bring us together as one so that we have the same mind, the same judgment, 
that we are like-minded, that we are cooperative, that there is harmony. And where there is division, we simply get together and talk. We don't broadcast our disunity, we just simply deal with it. There's a quiet and peaceful way that the Spirit of God will take two people at odds and fix it. If they both had the heart for the Lord, for one of them will be wrong, one of them will be right, or one of them hadn't been taught well yet, and give them time and they'll come around. Remember Romans 14? One brother believes that he should not eat meat. That's his heartfelt conviction that God would have me not eat meat. God said he accepts that. I mean, this is what motivates his life is this thing with the Lord. Now, he's weak in the faith, but he doesn't know that yet. He thinks he's right. And a guy who is free can't leave him alone. You can eat meat. What's wrong with you? I wash my car on Sunday, too. Well, you can quit pointing your finger at me. Leave him alone. If this brother eating meat and this brother thought it was wrong and he's a Christian, young, I wouldn't eat meat around him. After a while, I think, now you need to get on the program. You can't have these kind of beliefs all the time and say it's all right for you to believe whatever you want to. There is one way that is right. While we're growing, some people haven't gotten there yet, and you've got to give them a little room. You've got to give them a little room. There will come a time when you might want to say to them, do you not understand or have you read? You don't have to bring them to me. You minister to them. You do that. You do the restoring of the brother who's involved. He didn't say take them to the preacher. He didn't say bring them before the church. He said you restore them, you who are spiritual. So back in Ephesians 4 again, let's go to verse 11. Now, how are we going to fix this? How's all of this going to come to pass, this like-mindedness, this one-minded and judgment and this restoration and so forth? How is our demeanor going to change? Again, we have to come back to Jesus, don't we? Time out. Let's see if we can get this one about the change. Come unto me, all you that are wore out. Weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke. Now, the yoke is a together thing. Isn't it? I mean, you're yoked up with Jesus. You can't get away from him. You got that thing around your neck. And he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Is that doctrine? To be taught? If we're taught of him, then our teaching should center on Jesus, shouldn't it? Is not this whole book about Jesus? What about the Old Testament? Jesus said, you search the scriptures for in them. You think you have eternal life. He said, well, they are they which testify of me in John 5. So Jesus is the focus of the whole thing, isn't he? I'm not right unless I'm right with him. I'm not walking right unless I'm walking with what he said is right. It's got to be right with him. Is he the king? Is he the king in his kingdom? What we're supposed to do, seek first. And what? His right ways. That's what I'm required to do. First, seek first his kingdom and his right ways, and then everything else will come into focus and everything else will come to pass. But seek first his right way. That is your right relationship to him by doing what he declares is right, what he accepts, what he blesses, and what he puts his grace to.
That's it. Now, he goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for what? What's he like? Jesus, in his days on this earth, he was a policeman. Oh, remember how that time he went to Herod and he pointed his finger and said, I have 10,000 here in the morning. Remember that when he was threatening Herod and the government? Remember the time he had his disciples, thousands of them on the hillside, and he said, in the morning we're marching. Not to Zion. We're marching on the government. We're going to change things around here. I'm Jesus Christ. Follow me. You know what it said about Jesus? He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Whew, try that amongst us. We ain't backing off. When it comes time to get slaughtered, you're the ones going to get it because I'm going to wear you out. But he wasn't quite like that. Remember this? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for what will you find? I am meek and lowly in heart. And, and, and when you find that, you will find rest to your souls. That's when they begin to prosper and be in hell. That's when things begin to work for you, when you take upon him who he is. For again, this is what this whole fourth chapter of Ephesians turns out to be about. Till we all come to the measure. This is what it's about. Jesus comes to me as not only the pattern son whose life I must aspire to follow and be like. Jesus is what it's all about but not as some story, but as a living reality in your life, in the way you act, in the way you talk, in the things you do, in the things you think, in the way you surrender and be helpful and love other people. It's all patterned after him. We can't have a church with arrogant people. You can't have a church with people who are well-to-do and can't condescend to men of low estate. You can't have it. There has to be a surrender of who you are and who you think you are to Jesus Christ at the door and you see yourself as just a person that he has lovingly saved for no reason but that he wanted to. He doesn't need your talents. He doesn't need your voice. He doesn't need your money. He saved you because he wanted to. He wants to do a work inside of you, a nobody. That when he gets done with it, the whole world at least the community you're in will have to say, you know, there really is something to this religion about Christ. I believe God really did send Jesus. Look at the change he's made these people's lives. We sing it all the time, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask to be like him. He is the one worthy of all of our efforts. If he doesn't give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation to see this, and all we've got is religion. We have to keep building something. We have to keep painting it again or building another building and going debt four and a half million dollars for that. How stupid is that? We have to do things. We have to keep doing things to keep people busy when the one necessary essential thing is to be like Jesus. Preach Christ. Preach his doctrines. Tell people what the Bible says that he taught. Command them to be like him. Follow him. For me to live, Paul said, is what? It's Christ. And to be like Jesus is to have that meekness 
and that tenderness about you that when somebody fails, you may have to take a stand, but you pray. People here have fallen. And never should we say, ha, we just pray. You don't want to fall, do you? You'd want somebody to restore you back, but nobody will ever get restored and weep over their sins until they see who he is and what they've done to him. This is the essence of true repentance, restoration, and relationship. I'm going to hold verse 11 through 13 because this is good stuff. Until next time. And remember this. Brother Tom has never been in a hurry. My mother said I was never in a hurry to get born or to get dressed. So I'm going to live up to my call. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for your truth, for your word, the absolute loveliness of it, the clear meaning of it. Would to God this morning that we would just surrender to the power of this word. For this word, Lord, you've said was made flesh. And this word, the living Logos, is Jesus. And you have said in your word that when he comes, when he is presented to us, he's like a two-edged sword. He cuts to the chase. He gets right down to it, plays no favorites, separates between what is spiritual and what is carnal. He doesn't make us live right. He says, this is your problem. Deal with it. Give us grace and courage. Grant us this morning, O Lord, to be what you want us to be. Prepare our hearts to hear the rest of this. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.